and welcome back to Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast. This is episode number four out of eight, so we are at the halfway mark for this season. Thank you so much for listening and following along. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. I hope you enjoy it. Today we're going to meet our youngest composer. Becca Sims hails from St. John's, Newfoundland, and like a lot of East Coasters, she grew up with a rich family tradition of music. She does a lot of really cool things with live electronics, and she's going to break down how that works and how she used it in her piece, Forever Dark. We'll also talk to Dr. Kate about timbre, or the color of sounds, and the fascinating phenomenon of synesthesia. Synesthesia is when multiple senses overlap, and it may affect everyone as an infant. Thank you so much for listening, and let's dive right in. How did you get started in music? I was brought up in a very musical family. St. John's Newfoundland has like a really, and not just St. John's, but all of Newfoundland, has a very casual music culture. So um, a lot of people engage in music without any training uh, it's just something that happens in the house when friends are around. Kitchen parties. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it was very, um, it didn't really require me like finding myself. It was just kind of already there. And I loved music. I excelled at it in school. Um, I actually was a very good recorder player. <laughs> yeah, I, I really latched onto it. And I would like learn all sorts of video game tunes on it and folk tunes. Uh, back when I used to go to church, my... Um, mother brought me to this like Christmas service and there's this beautiful instrument up in the balcony and I was like ah, that's what I want that sounds beautiful it's a flute and it turns out it was actually a clarinet but not knowing the difference I did ask for a flute and that's what I got so I'm curious like I don't I don't have a music background but I'm always really curious to hear how so you play flutes and you have it sounds like some early training and early familiarity with with lots of instruments in a casual way how do you go to compose something for for a bigger cast yes it's really challenging um I remember asking when I was in a a youth orchestra uh, our conductor was also a composer and he put one of his pieces in front of us and had us read it and afterwards I, I hadn't really thought about the fact that living people compose music. I know that sounds very silly. I'm the same way. That's why I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was aware that like people had jobs to create soundtracks or sound design for movies and television and maybe even jingles. But this idea that someone would have a job that is writing for uh, players and it's not accompanied by any visual or any other media. It's it's music for the sake of music all by itself and it's presented all by itself. It didn't really click to me until I, I came across work by living people as a as a musician. And if I if I hadn't come across that as a musician, I'm not sure when that would have really clicked for me. Um, but I remember asking him. I, I was just like, how like, how did you do this? And he said, whatever your inter- whatever your instrument is, write for that start with that like so I was playing flute and piccolo in the orchestra and he said write a, write a piece for flute then write a piece for two flutes and then write a piece for three flutes <laughs> and just like <laughs> have more and more flutes <laughs> I mean it's hard to have like a full orchestra of flutes and I don't think many people would want that necessarily um but eventually by the time I was re- I think that I was ready to write for more instruments I had entered undergraduate studies and so I actually had training in and how to write for different um, instruments and orchestration that became available to me through school. 
Oh, it's really cool. And do you have like, do you have a favorite, like is flute your favorite thing to write for? Or do you have uh, like a, like a size group that you, you find really comfortable to, to work within? That's so funny. For a long time, I actually hated writing for the flute the most. <laughs> you knew it too well. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just knew that like, if I, if I didn't do a good job, I would know best of all, you know what I mean? Like, there was there was more pressure on it because it's like, oh, she comes from a flute background and then it doesn't look like she knows what she's doing for flute, then she must not know what she's doing for anything. You know, that sort of like negative self-talk that so many artists engage in. Um, so I, I avoided flute for a really long time. And my I think my favorite thing to write for it would probably be string instruments. Oh, okay. Yeah, just because they're so flexible and they have such a large range and so many different types of sounds and and, no- and noise, and they're quite capable of producing a lot of sounds that are between pitch or notes and noise, but they, they are very, very malleable, which I like. And in addition to that, I would say anything that's extremely, extremely low, so like a contrabassoon, a, a bass flute, tuba, yeah, I, I like things that are really low. Do you work with uh, electronics or mixing typically, or, or is your stuff written sort of just to be played, uh, uh, played straight, played live? I'm increasingly writing for more electronic elements. That term isn't always clear, but it means for something to have electronics. So for me, that used, what, what it used to mean when I was first starting working with them is that I would create a part for digital sound it would basically exist as a file, like a wave file that would play over a set of speakers alongside an instrumentalist's part. And so the electronics would be set in stone. They existed the same way every time. However, lately I've been also looking at uh, live electronics rather than fixed. And so live electronics, they take like a signal from a microphone. So a player is amplified and plays into the microphone. And it takes that signal and transforms it or processes it live in the moment at the time. And it spits something out that's processed into the speakers. And so there's a lot of more like vitality in, in what, what can happen. It's not the same thing every time. And live, live electronics requires coding and processing or, or sometimes hardware like guitar pedals and stuff. It's a little more challenging. My experience as an undergrad was that every piece that had live electronics always broke down in the middle of performance. Um, but I, I opted to do a type of live electronics called um, EarChem. And that model is that you hire a programmer. You hire someone who, who knows programming, who knows how to work with um, a program like Max. You describe what you want, what the, the effect of the sound is. Let's say, hey, like I have this microphone with a cello, and at this point I want it to sound like there's 10 cellos and they're spread across both speakers and they have a lot of reverb on them. Can you do that? And then they just go do that and you don't have to worry about the programming yourself. You're just making the sound decisions. And, and that's what I've been doing more of lately, which is what I did in the piece Forever Dark. Oh, that's so cool. All right. You're going to you're gonna have to dive into this. I'm having some trouble picturing it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you've, you'd have like the cello be on stage and they'd be playing and you'd have this code that was written. And sorry, this sounds like really basic, but like, where does the code go? Is it, do you have a laptop on stage or like? There's definitely a laptop involved. So the, uh, the cellist is playing with a microphone. In the case of this piece, his signal is, is attached right to the instrument body. That sound, that signal is sent to an interface, which is hooked up to a laptop. So it comes into the laptop as, a, as an audio in. And then there's a, the coding. All this coding is done in a program called Max. 
which it is still coding, but a lot of the objects within Max are pre-coded, then it's a little easier to use. So then the, the program processes and changes the audio. And then that, uh-huh. that audio comes out of the laptop back into two speakers that are next to the performer. Oh, okay. And this is all happening like split second, like as they're playing uh, on the cello, the sound is also, the kind of modified sound is also coming out of these speakers? Yeah, exactly. The reason a lot of live electronics sort of fail in the middle of a piece or like they don't work at all is because of, I mean, well, there's usually routing issues, but most of it is just the program itself crashing. And uh, that did not happen. But just in case, we actually had the program running on two simultaneous computers, uh, four, like, four simultaneous ins and outs, so that if oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, if one of them crashed, it would just go to the next computer, and then we would turn the audio up from that computer and just try and make it as seamless as possible. But it was I, I was having heart palpitations for sure on that end. What draws you to using electronics? You kind of mentioned that it took you a while to sort of want to work with it live, at least just for the, for the um, call it the fear factor. Um, but uh, what, what do you think it adds to your work? I'm very concerned in my work with differences of, of timbre or like the colors of sound um, and, le- and less concerned with what the pitches are, what the harmonies are. And when you think of all your different possibilities with how something can sound, it's it's certainly not limited, but with electronics, you expand that palette almost like to infinity. For example, a piece with flute and electronics, the electronics part could also be flute sounds, but going way lower than a flute could ever go, way higher, way faster, way slower. Um, the electronics part doesn't need to breathe. You know, there are a lot of possibilities, especially with my mixed music. The electronics part usually also sounds fairly instrumental. What I'm, what I'm going for is mystery of, is the sound, where is it coming from? Is it the live person? Is it the electronics? You don't know. It's like a mysteriousness of sound source. Ambiguity. Yeah, it really, really blends in. But at the same time, it goes farther than it could with a, with a human player. Totally. And likewise, there are a lot of things sometimes called extended techniques where you play the instrument slightly different and the timbre changes and it comes occasionally less recognizable as that instrument. And in the same way that that ambiguity uh, is attractive to me in electronic and acoustic interactions, the way that you can make an instrument sound not like itself is also attractive to me. So tell me about Forever Dark. What's the backstory to this piece? Yeah, so Forever Dark is the first piece I've ever written in the form of a concerto, uh, which is where there is a really defined, well-defined solo part. And so I was commissioned by an orchestra called the Spree Orchestra, and I had concerti on the brain for some reason. I was really into that that formatting. And so I, I pitched the the director a concerto, and he was like, um, okay. It wasn't their first suggestion. It's a little bit more work for the organization because they've got to bring in a soloist. And I told them that I wanted to do electronics. And uh, I was and continue to be a good self-advocate. If I want to do something, I uh, I stand up and pitch for myself quite a bit. Yeah, but you were making it a little bit complicated. <laughs> I was. And they were, they were good sports about it, though. And particularly, I really wanted to work with a good friend of mine named Amal Arulavandam. He is a cellist, and he has a really interesting way of anticipating the types of sounds that I want without even me being clear in those sounds. He's like a mind reader. He's really, really great, and I've worked with him a number of times. And so I I knew I wanted to write the solo part for him, 
And one of the things that me and Amal have in common is that we are into metal. And a lot of my recent music, maybe 50 to 60% of it, I take outside source material, like little quotations, and, and integrate it into the piece and make it a very important part of the fabric of the piece. And so considering that I was working with a friend who is into metal, and I'm into metal, I decided that this concerto had to be founded Clearly. in metal. Yeah, it had to be. There's no other way. Well, this piece is interesting because it's the first time that I used multiple quotations within one piece. Normally, I would just take one thing and just stretch it as far as it can go, which is a, sort of a challenge that I enjoy. But in this piece, my challenge was to take like 10 quotes and still make it sound like it made sense and all belonged in one piece. It came from three metal bands, but sort of a, a bunch of different songs from each metal band. They were Bathory. I also used some quotes from Strapping Young Lad, who are a Canadian metal band. And then lastly, I used some quotes from uh, System of a Down, who are like an, an Armenian-American new metal band. They were, uh, they were really, really popular when I was like 10, 11, 12, and, which is when I first started getting into metal. Why did you title it Forever Dark? I'm so <laughs> um, well, there's one of my one of my favorite Bathory songs is called Forever Dark Woods. But Forever Dark also, besides being from the song title, it's so much cheesy, but I liked metal and I looked I really looked like I liked metal for a long time when I was a teenager. I kind of stepped away from those scenes. And then as I was approaching my mid twenties, I just like got back into a lot of these bands for the first time in, in almost ten years and was really enjoying it and Start my wardrobe started turning around. I started wearing all black again. Uh, I dyed my hair, and I was just like, you know what? I'm not gonna deny it. Like my inner self is like, it's forever dark. That's awesome. No, I I actually really like that because I feel like there are these little personal stories that go into the music, kind of outside the like, well, I need I need the piece to be for these kinds of players and that kind of thing. So that's cool. So it's really uh, sort of little bit of a homecoming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, it was absolutely a homecoming. And like, I like a lot of different types of music. And I definitely do write things that are very tender and soft. Um, but this piece was it gets it gets heavy, like it's, it's not heavy the whole way through. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be heavy the whole way through. Um, but it is. Um, yeah, it's it's home, it feels like home. So you mentioned you writing kind of other pieces with different moods. This is a broad question. But like, how do you see Forever Dark fitting into your collection of things you've made? Right now, it's one of my favorite pieces that I've done. Like As a composer, I for a long time, I felt like I wasn't yet writing the music that I wanted to write because I had so many things to learn. I had... I heard pieces and I loved them and I knew that I knew why I liked them. But I just didn't seem to be able to reproduce something of a similar character, caliber, quality. And with Forever Dark, I feel like it's something that I am proud of. So my painting to Forever Dark wasn't really as dark as you'd think. All my paintings are mixed media on white or cream paper. So I use India inks, water-soluble crayons, and small eyedroppers with pre-mixed watercolor. I don't have synesthesia, at least not anymore. We'll talk about that more later with Dr. Kate. But when I listened to Becca's piece, I really wanted to use intense blues and purples. Oddly enough, I think that had more to do with my idea of Becca herself than the music. Becca does have a pretty goth look, and her hair is currently green, so maybe that had something to do with the kinds of 
rich, vivid, witchy colors I was drawn to. I also painted this piece right around Halloween, and my notes have things jotted down like high murdery sounds and creepy fairy tinkles and chainsaw? Question mark? So maybe it's a little bit dark after all. I love how much is going on in the soundscape, and I'm really pleased with how it came out on paper. So if you want to check out the full-size version, there's a link in the show notes to my website. Now, back to Becca and the ever-popular lightning round. Do you have any guilty pleasures? I try and have integrity in everything that I like and own up to it and not be guilty about it. So I can't, uh, I mean, right now, Star Trek Voyager is on in the background. And I hear a lot of people, a lot of people give that show a hard time. So maybe other people would feel guilty about liking it. No, I don't. I don't think I, I hear that kind of chatter, but okay. I like that though. Own what you like. Just like it. Yeah, exa- exactly. Uh, what was the last country you visited? Uh, the last country that I was outside of Canada was Austria. It was for... um like a new music conference slash academy so I had some lessons while I was there um a duo performed my piece uh which lots of concerts it was good sweet who or what were you named for so this is basically what like what's the story of your first name well I wish it was interesting but being a Rebecca from 1990 my parents were just basically asking the age-old question of Jessica or Rebecca and they went (laughs) with Rebecca if you could be any animal what would you be I feel like a, a crow or a raven. Okay, again, forever dark. <laughs> uh, what would your superpower be? Um, I think I just would want to fly. I, I don't think that my my personality would suggest that that would be my my superpower, but that's the one that would be most attractive to me. Totally. Um, and last one: puppies or kittens? Puppies. Do you want to talk about any concerts you have coming up or projects or what's next one? Well, I have a quite a number of things coming up. On December 16th, I have something in Vancouver with Redshift. I just wrote a little six-minute piece uh, of music that's going to be spatialized around a room in complete darkness. Um, I think it's called the Ephotic uh, Zone, and it's happening in Pyatt Hall in Vancouver. And after that, in the new year in 2020, I actually have two um, orchestra performances back to back, which is um, pretty unusual for me. One of them is part of the 21C Festival in Toronto. Um, They're performing a new piece that I'm working on for soprano and harp soloists with electronics and chamber orchestra. The piece Forever Dark is actually being performed again in Toronto in January um, as a part of University of Toronto's New Music Festival by their um, contemporary music ensemble. One thing that Becca said that I found really intriguing was this idea of timbre and the color of sounds. As an artist who paints to music, I had never heard this term before. So Dr. Kate, can you tell me a little bit about what timbre is? Timbre is the way that we can tell apart different kinds of sounds, like different voices or different musical instruments. Sometimes we call it tone color or tone quality. There's four different ways you can describe a sound. So you can describe the pitch of a sound, the duration, the loudness, and the timbre. When the pitch, duration, and loudness of two sounds are the same, but the timbre is different, then we can tell them apart. So timbre is what makes a piano sound piano-ish and a guitar sound guitar-y, even when they're playing the same note. So with Becca's music... 
I mean, I wouldn't be able to tell where the cello ends and the electronics begin. I have no idea what the limits of a cello are. Well, think of the fake violin or fake drum sounds that come pre-programmed on digital keyboards. Those are synthesized sounds called MIDI imitations, and they don't sound convincing. Listeners know they're digital and not the actual instrument itself. Timbre is how listeners can tell the difference between real cello and synthesized cello. What's different about using software for live electronics the way Becca does is that the structure of the cello sound hasn't changed. So the audience hears a manipulated version of the actual cello timbre, and the timbre is really convincing. Even if you use electronics to achieve impossible sounds, like a note that's too high or too low for a real cello to make, the sounds themselves are still cello-y. So that kind of reminds me about episode one. We talked about how music is multisensory and how your brain takes in cues from many senses to combine them into what you think you're hearing. Exactly. Music is multisensory for everybody, but about 4% of adults have a more extreme version of multisensory perception. It's called synesthesia, and people with synesthesia are called synesthetes. Synesthetes have consistent, strong associations between two of their senses that are linked together. One common type of synesthesia is to associate particular colors and particular sounds. But other people might see letters as having colors, and some people say that they can taste different words. So far, scientists have recorded more than 90 different kinds of synesthesia, but they're always finding more. Because people with synesthesia have perceived things this way for as long as they can remember, they don't tend to know they're different from everybody else until they reach adulthood. But scientists now think everyone is born with a version of synesthesia. Some people grow out of it, and a few don't. One of the first studies to show this in 2011 demonstrated that two- and three-month-old babies associate colors and shapes. So they think of circles as being blue or triangles as being yellow. But by the time those same babies are eight months old, they don't have those preferences anymore. It's actually pretty common for very young babies to have these types of preferences that go away as they get older. One of the hardest things babies have to learn is to determine which sensory information is real and what they can ignore. Newborns take in nearly everything because they don't know yet what's important. Before your first birthday, sensory processing specializes to tune out information that doesn't matter and to focus on messages that are important to survive. The theory right now is that people with synesthesia have kept some of those extra connections in their brain that other people have trimmed away. They have connections between their senses, like sound and color, that other people don't have anymore. That's so cool. I remember when I was a kid, every year had a different color. So in my mind, 1991 was very yellow, and 1994 felt kind of magenta-y pink. But it kind of petered out when I was in junior high. Yeah. When I was a kid, I remember there was this one key on my piano that was pineapple. I don't actually remember what key it was or when that stopped, but unfortunately, I don't have that perception anymore. 
you so much to Becca and Dr. Kate for joining me. The full show notes are up on my website, including links to Becca's upcoming shows. There are also a ton of links for synesthesia, if you are as fascinated and intrigued by this concept as I was. Apparently, Frank Ocean has synesthesia, and he named his album Channel Orange after it, at least according to Wikipedia. For our next episode, we're going to leave the heavy metal behind and talk to Jared Miller. Jared's beautiful piece, Under Sea, Above Sky, has been described as a love letter to planet Earth, and I think that's totally appropriate. So please join me, Jared, and Dr. Kate on the next episode of Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast. <laughs>